0: alright let's begin yes questions yeah, Okay.
1: so we had talked a little bit in the break earlier about burial you mentioned that in the first hour about burial and how burial is biblical or proper for Christians <clears throat> but then in our own day you see a lot more people being cremated today than what was in the past and also the cost of burial has, is really extensive as opposed to cremation and that's why a lot of people are doing cremation instead of burial. So could you just talk about all those issues and then what should, I mean, what do you do when you've got someone, in, which is a, not a hypothetical, but someone that I know who would want to be buried, but they don't have the money to do it. And so they're they're, they're planning on being cremated, but they would prefer to be buried, but they don't have the money to pay all that. Um, Whenever they die. Would it be okay. a sin? I mean, What's not, that? Would it be a sin not to bury? Like what? actual sin? I mean, we know that that's a picture of you know, the resurrection that will come eventually. But would it be sinful for somebody not to bury because they can't afford it?
0: Okay. In the first hour, we talked about burial or burning, cremation. And so you would like me to address that issue some more. Yeah. All right. And would it be a sin if we don't bury? Well, if the Bible is teaching us to bury and it is a sign of our faith in the life to come, then whatever is not from faith is sin. Romans 14:23. And James 4:17, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. So, it would be sin, I believe, if we don't bury, knowing All these issues like this, especially if we know what these issues are, we should not. And even then, those who have the Holy Spirit dwelling in them, how is it that they flippantly think of what they're going to do about their life and about their death without any consideration of the normal course of things in terms of the Christian life or in terms of what the Bible teaches, that they should not be... um, cremating their dead, but they should be burying their dead. Why is it that they are thinking in terms of cremation? Uh, How does that thought come into the mind? Well, according to Scripture, it's of the flesh, it's the world, it's the devil. It's coming from paganism and idolatry and a curse on those unrepentant sinners. That's the example in the Bible. If anybody's reading the Bible, he would not come away thinking... Well, I'm going to burn my dead. They would not think that. They would think burial. Because of the examples given, the faithful bury, but the unfaithful, they are burned. Yes, unfaithful people are also buried, but exclusively in the Bible, as far as I know, all the examples of those bodies being burned are examples of wicked people being burned, not righteous people. Or even innocent people like when idolaters burn their children to the idols. So that's another situation of people being burned, but those are innocent people being burned by wicked parents to the idols of the land. So um, what's going on? Why is it that we have so much cremation these days, at least in the United States? I think that there's at least two reasons why. One, there is the rise of atheism and secularism and communism in the country. There's a rise in that, and that's what they believe. They don't believe in the value of human life, the value of the human soul. Many of them even deny that we have a soul that survives death. They all deny resurrection from the dead because they are atheists, communists, socialists, uh, secularists, whatever label you, you would like to use. So that's one reason. I think another reason why cremation has become more popular is the influx of Hindus and Buddhists into the United States. Or if you think of Hindu and Buddhist countries, this is what they do, right? So when they bring their religion here, that's what they want to practice. They want to practice that here in the United States and the way that our our politicians are, and even the way many of the pastors are, they say, well, we'll we'll all just get along, we're all one, Uh, love reigns, uh, give give peace a chance. They have this kind of mentality that we can all survive with competing worldviews. No, we can't survive. We have to, as biblically as possible, have a unified worldview, not conflicting worldviews. So I think for those two reasons... Uh, ideologically, those are two reasons why um, cremation is more popular these days, um, more than it used to be. Then, a third practical reason is um, the burying of people has been taken out, in some ways, out of the church's purview, out of the church's responsibility, and it has been shifted to these um, homes or or, uh, crematories or some third party to handle the matter in conjunction with the government. In conjunction with the government. Because when a funeral home has that, what are they banking on? They are, in a sense, banking on our money, but actually they're banking on tax money. Tax money. Because if you are a part of of certain governmental programs and you are a senior, then those programs will take care of your burial, right? And then they stipulate how much money you can have or can't have in your bank account for you to get their money when you are aged, and then when you die, how much money they will give you for your burial, right? So this is all a scam in cahoots with the government. What does the government have to do with burying an individual? They say in the name of, of sanitation and safety for everybody that they need to do that, but please, all they need to do is make sure that the private entities that handle it do it properly. Correct? For, for example, uh, just to use an, uh, an example that's obvious, the post office, the U.S. Postal Service. Why in the world does that exist? We don't need it. You can use... Uh, FedEx, you can use DHL, you can use um, UPS, you can use private companies to deliver mail. correct? so we don 't need the us postal service it 's just a big waste of money, Com- a bi- big scam. So in the same way, why does the government has to reg- why does the government have to regulate who can bury, how much it can cost or should cost, and that all of that. So when the funeral homes know they 're going to get a certain amount of money from the government, they can raise the price. And they make a lot of money. So get it out of the money-making business and out of the the corrupt governmental filthy fingers uh, in this issue. Get their hands out of it and let the private people do what they need to do to bury their own debt. That will drop the price dramatically. Now, meantime, if you want to have a dramatic drop in the price, (coughs) It may cost about $2,000 instead of $10,000, $20,000 if you have your dead buried, buried, not burned, but buried within a day, within a day or shortly after death. And then if you want to hold a service, whatever you want to call the service, a memorial service, funeral service, whatever, you can have that three days later, four days later, a week later when everyone can gather to mourn for their dead. But in terms of the body itself, it doesn't have to be seen by every person coming from out of town on the third or the fourth day. It can be buried within a day, and the price drops dramatically when that happens. So, meantime, until the prices drop for you to be able to do so, you can bury your dead within a day. All right?
1: In the Bible, Yes. I mean, it, it... like you were saying, it uh, assumes that they were burying them pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. They would die and there wasn't some long, drawn out process where, again, all these people come in and you look at the body um, and then you have a funeral three or four days later. It seems like they're burying them either the day they die or the next day, quickly. Um, And then you just move on, Yes. right? yes so where did all I mean so these ideas today that in order to grieve and mourn you need to look at the body that people need to see it at the funeral all these things are um, they're extra they're extra yes right? but, it, but it also it plays into the fact that if that's going to happen then you need to embalm them yes you need to use a funeral home you have to use these professionals to do this Because
0: you can't do it yourself at home, Yes, yes. And so it raises the price when you have it embalmed and preserved for three or four days. That that happens. Um, But then the funeral home can um, advertise viewings, wakes or viewings, uh, for the purpose of increasing the emotional attachment unnecessarily with the high prices. This is how they... They sell what they do, and but it's unnecessary. So what, what, why do we need to see? Why does everybody in the family, uh, to to the uh, you know the, the second cousin twice removed or however you, you want to name it? Why does that person has to have to come from out of town to see the body? Right? Well, why does that have to happen? Those have seen
1: things... them in 15 years.
0: And, yeah, and they haven't seen them in 15 years. But they come to the funeral because that's when everybody's going to be together. Maybe they want to see somebody else. They really didn't care about this dead relative in, in the first place. But he's coming because he wants to see somebody else or strike a business deal with some other relative. You know, people do those things. So why do that? Why do that? Especially when... Um, we consider the circumstances. It's unnecessary. Would,
1: would okay. I be able to suggest also like if you truly can't afford it, like even if you do the one-day thing, like if you, you, your immediate family or whatever couldn't all put money in together to support it, then maybe you could talk to your church.
0: Yes, okay. Now, that, that, I forgot to answer that part of it. Thank you. So if we can't afford it, maybe we could talk to the church. So in that regard... In that regard, um, there's a two- or three-fold answer to give for that. For one, people should be saving for their own burial. No
1: doubt.
0: <laughs> okay? People should save for their own burial. It's not the time, even in retirement, to live it up and then let all of the, the damage of your, your free and carefree, luxurious life in retirement be placed on your children and your grandchildren. Right. You shouldn't live that way. That's not a responsible person. A responsible person will save up save up money for his own expenses. And then whatever remains after his burial, that can be given <coughs> as inheritance to the rest of the family. Correct? So that's what he should do first. Now, why do I say that? Well, it says... Um, in Ephesians 4.28, 4.28, Let him who steals, steal no longer, but rather let him labor, performing with his own hands what is good, in order that he may have something to share with him who has need. Right. The, the amount of money we have, instead of stealing, we should be laboring, And when we do labor, we not only provide for ourselves, but we have extra to help others who have a need. A legitimate need. We're not talking about giving to leeches, to bums in the church or outside the church. We're not talking about that. We're talking about those who have a legitimate need. So we should be earning enough for ourselves and enough to share with others. And if we're living that way, then there won't be this issue what's going to happen when I die? Uh, my children won't have the money to bury me. That should never happen if the individual is living rightly in the first place. Right. Now, supposing for whatever unforeseen circumstance that happens, then who's next in line and responsible to help with the burial of parents? The children. The children and the grandchildren. The children and the grandchildren. Why? 1 Timothy chapter 5. 1 Timothy 5, 1 to 16, teaches us how to address widows, how to help widows. 1 Timothy 5, verse 1. Do not sharply rebuke an older man, but rather appeal to him as a father, to the younger men as brothers, the older women as mothers, and the younger women as sisters in all purity. Honor widows who are widows indeed. But if any widow has children or grandchildren, let them, who the them, who's the them? The children and grandchildren. Let them first learn to practice piety, practice godliness in regard to their own family and to make some return to their parents. For this is acceptable in the sight of God. Now she who is a widow indeed and who has been left alone has fixed her hope on God and continues in entreaties and prayers night and day. But she who gives herself to wanton pleasure is dead even while she lives. Prescribe these things as well so that they may be above reproach. In 5 to 6, he's describing a true widow and a false widow, meaning a true widow whose who is suffering at the loss of her husband, but she puts her hope in God and she lives in a godly way. But then there's another kind of widow who gives herself to wanton pleasure. That kind of widow is dead even while she's alive. This is what should be taught to everyone. Verse 8. But if anyone does not provide for his own and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Meaning, children and grandchildren ought to provide for their own, especially in their own household. And if we don't do that, we deny the faith and we're worse than unbelievers. Right. That's, the, that's the second line, that, or the second category. That's the second source of sustenance for parents. Their own children and grandchildren. They should do it. And if they claim to be believers and don't do it, they deny the faith and they are worse than unbelievers. Next, when should the church help? The church is number three. Remember, first, it's the individual who should take care of himself. Secondly, it's the children and the grandchildren, which we just saw. And now, thirdly, the church. Verse 9. Let a widow be put on the list only if she is not less than 60 years old, having been the wife of one man, having a reputation for good works, and if she has brought up children, if she has shown hospitality to strangers, if she has washed the saints' feet, if she has assisted those in distress, and if she has devoted herself to every good work. A widow is put on the list of help from the church if she's a godly widow.
1: Right.
0: if she's a godly widow, then the church should assist her. Verse 11, But refuse to put younger widows on the list, for when they feel sensual desires in disregard of Christ, they want to get married, thus incurring condemnation because they have set aside their previous pledge. And at the same time, they also learn to be idle as they go around from house to house and not merely idle, but also gossips and busybodies talking about things not proper to mention. In the case of younger widows, also mentioned in verse 6, giving themselves over to wanton pleasure, living irresponsibly, and causing problems in families and in the church, they are the, and then they break their promise or their pledge, because when they lost their husband, presumably, initially they said, Oh, I lost my husband, I'm grieving, and I'm going to dedicate my life to God now. Okay, they make a pledge to dedicate their life to God, but they can't resist. They live in, with, in wanton pleasure. They are idle and they go around using their mouths in wrong ways. And he says, this should not be the case. Younger widows should not be helped by the church. They should be encouraged to remarry, he says, verse 14. Therefore, I want younger widows to get married, bear children, keep house, and give the enemy no occasion for reproach, for some have already turned aside to follow Satan. The younger widows then should marry, bear children, keep house, and live a godly life so that the enemy cannot uh, heap reproaches on Christians and the church. And those who won't do this, who won't remarry, who live an ungodly life, they are following Satan. Really, they are following Satan. Now, if they do remarry and they have children, or their previous children from the first husband, now they have two sets of children. Those children should be able to take care of their mother when she dies. And the church shouldn't have to do it, right? And then, I think in verse 16, we're talking about a woman who has a dependent widow. So, a free woman who may have a slave woman as a dependent. Verse 16, If any woman who is a believer has dependent widows, let her assist them and let not the church be burdened so that it may assist those who are widows indeed. So a widow indeed is old enough and godly and a widow indeed is one who does not remarry and who is in a genuine situation of having to have help from the church. Then the church should help with her needs while she's alive and even her burial once she dies. Otherwise, the individual, or if not the individual, for whatever reasons, the children and the grandchildren should help. All right? That's the line of supply or provision. Next question. Anyone else? No one else?
1: So it would be good for churches then to look at the laws, look at the things that we could do to help and even to get around this racket that's taking place. If there's ways for us to get around that and to do these things ourselves, then we should be willing to do that.
0: Correct, correct. Churches, this third, third line of provision, churches should be in a position to help widows who are widows indeed.
1: Well, and, and even too, I mean, even if someone has the money, there's still the principle of paying $15,000 to a funeral home to do a burial when it's not necessary. I mean, what, it, that's it's just ridiculous Yeah. that it costs that much to put someone who's dead yeah. to bury them. You yeah. know, it's, I mean, there's still the principle of this is just not right. It's not what, right. What's taking place? But you can even start yeah, I've got a pre-burial thing already. Mm-hmm. Mine's already planned out. All all got to do is have my date of date to death. and they even have it now, where you can make payments on it. And if you die before it's paid off, it's paid off. Yeah. I know I know a wood, wood craftsman, and he has built his own casket. He's said waiting. He said that'll save him three, four, five thousand dollars right there. Do you remember feeling? In Mexico,
0: he was telling you somebody's building caskets. Oh, yes, yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> yes, uh, we were on a missions trip, and somebody, a pastor, said he knows someone um, who, uh, locally in the Port Arthur, Texas area, he builds caskets and sells them to people in the church for uh, a big discount.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. So, yeah, think about the future. Prepare for the future so that you are not a burden to your children and grandchildren.
1: Yes? So, embalming is not a, a state uh, mandate? Yes, it is. If it crosses state lines or international lines?
0: Embalming, is it a state mandate? And you said it is if it crosses state lines
1: or international, or international lines. lines. I know because so we've had people die overseas on mission and it was required. But if, you're, but, but if you're a resident of Oklahoma, does Oklahoma have some sort of law that would mandate embalming? That I'm not positive. What, what I've seen, again, I'd have to check it and make sure, is that if you're buried within 24 hours of death, you do not have to be embalmed. Huh? Yeah.
0: That's my yeah. understanding, also. You
1: have to have a body bag. You don't don't have to have a casket. It could be in a body bag, and you can be buried on your own property. Mm-hmm. Can it be in a, a body bag? in a body bag within twenty-four hours of death. Wow. But you have to be buried within twenty-four hours of death. If it's after twenty-four hours, then you'd have to be involved. Huh. Good to know. Yeah. But but it would take you'd have to plan for it. And you'd have to have people trustworthy in place to execute it. Yeah. Otherwise it's just gonna go back into the So system. you don't even need a, a credit for casket. A body bag would suffice? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah.
0: but I'm sure it's different from state to state. So it's good for everybody to check,
1: to check their, their,
0: their own state. But there does own. seem
1: to be more of a, um, I don't know, there are some people out there talking. I mean, are there are other people that are seeing this and talking about it. And there is some what, what of a more of a grassroots type movement back, back toward home burials. So taking place in home instead of through the you know because usually you just I mean everyone it's just the assumption that this is just the way it's done and everyone just does it this way and you don't have any choice yeah but I think there is there are options but you have to plan for it beforehand otherwise this is the way for it works. Sure. <laughs> yeah, you only have a 24 hour window. You're gonna have to get You have got a
0: All right. Now, by the way, speaking of home burials, we do have a couple of those in the Bible. Home burials. 1 Samuel 25. 1 Samuel 25 verse 1. 1 Samuel 25 verse 1. says, Then Samuel died, and all Israel gathered together and mourned for him, and buried him at his house in Ramah. Buried him at his house in Ramah. Now when it says at his house, it doesn't literally mean they opened up. a a place in the floor in the foundation right there in the kitchen or in the living room. (laughs) It doesn't mean it that way. And why do I say it doesn't mean it that way? Look at this other example. 2 Kings 21. 2 Kings 21. 2 Kings 21. 18. 2 Kings 21. 18. And Manasseh slept with his fathers and was buried in the garden of his own house in the garden of Uzzah, and Amon his son, became king in his place. Right? It says, buried in the garden of his own house. In the garden. But shorthand, in 1 Samuel, it just says, at his house. And also, a parallel to Manasseh's death is in 2 Chronicles 33, 2 Chronicles 33, 20. 2 Chronicles 33, 20. The 2 Kings 21, 18 and 2 Chronicles 33, 20 are referring to the same incident, that is Manasseh, but describing it differently. Second Chronicles 33:20. So Manasseh slept with his fathers and they buried him in his own house and his son Ammon became king in his place. So there it says in his own house, but in doesn't mean, in this ridiculous way, in his own living room that, that they opened up the, the floor. It doesn't mean it that way. It means that some place on the property of his house, sure. which Second Kings twenty one eighteen makes it very clear, it was in the garden of his house. That's where Manasseh was buried. So home burials are, are not out of, the, out of the question in terms of what the, the Bible Shows. All right. Any more questions or comments?
1: Well, so uh, Abraham and his ability to live in a um, amiable way with the people of the, though they were idolaters and they were unbelievers, yet he was still able to live live there, not approve of what they were doing, not join in with them, but still have some type of relationship and be on good terms with them because of the way he conducted himself. Um, anyway, so could you just talk about that and, you know, we've met certain people before who are very, um, if you don't agree with them on every single thing, then they're they're always contentious and always Confrontational. confrontational. Does that make sense? So it's not that Abraham was never confrontational. We know that he was with the king of Sodom. But also he's able to live in such a way that he's not constantly um, being confrontational to these people. Like in this situation, he doesn't bring up their idolatry. He's just dealing with the land and wanting to get, get a piece of property so that he can marry his wife. Um, so just talk about, did you talk about
0: that, those things? That yes. How, as Christians, are we to live in the world? How close can we be or how distant should we be? And do we have to be confrontational and contentious about everything that we see going on around us whenever we interact with unbelievers? All right? Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9. 1 Corinthians 5, Nine. First Corinthians five nine. We have the apostle telling us how to deal with an unrepentant sinner in the church, but then he contrasts it with unrepentant sinners in the world. First Corinthians five nine. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. So he's not saying we should have no associations with the sinners, unrepentant sinners of the world because the only way to avoid interaction with unrepentant sinners is to go out of the world. This means he's assuming we will have interaction with unrepentant sinners in our daily dealings with people. Correct? No doubt. And then, remember we read earlier from Colossians 4, verse 5, Conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. He doesn't say, Don't ever interact with outsiders. Leave. Go out of the world. Go live on the top of a mountain. He doesn't say things like that. He says that we should conduct ourselves with wisdom toward them. So, we should interact. Abraham did, and many others did, throughout Scripture. They interacted with the people of the world. They just knew when to draw the line. When they were expected to worship idols, or when they were expected to behave unethically, that's when they drew the line. But otherwise, they did what they could to keep associating with the people of the world, just not sin with them. It's, you, it's okay to have a friendship with a fornicator as long as you're not in the room when he's fornicating. Because if you're in the room, the only thing you can do is to tell him that he needs to repent and believe in Christ. But you can have a relationship with a fornicator when you're in the workplace, Correct? When he's the cashier at the store, you can be friendly to him. If you know he's a fornicator, you can be friendly to him, like that. So, in those ways, we have relationships with unrepentant sinners, but we should not ever endorse their sin. In fact, we should separate from their sin and make known to them their sin whenever we have opportunity to say something about it, to do something about it, then we should make it known. But it shouldn't be that we are contentious and pugnacious people toward them. That's not the way we should be. We're not supposed to be quarrelsome. We're not to be argumentative. 2nd Timothy 2:23 to 26 teaches that not to be that way. But we have to take a stand as well. We should be kind and and yet firm in our beliefs and convictions.
1: So using that example of the fornicating uh, cashier, then it may be that there's a time for me to say something to him about that. But every time I go to the store and see him there, do I need to say, you need to quit fornicating? Or is there a place to just say hello to him? He's not doing it in my presence, though I know he's doing that. Do I every time I see him do I need to call him to repent and confront his sin or is there a place to just greet him okay. thank you and then move on down uh down the road does that make sense
0: Yeah well I would say uh, let, let's say that it's a busy hour mm-hmm. and there's a lot of people in the line you can't bring up anything with him all you can do is say hello how are you and as he's checking you out, be friendly and say goodbye. But you can't begin a conversation or hold a conversation with him at that time. So just be kind and make it quick. But if you've got time, there's nobody behind you, you go in an off-peak time, and he's standing there, you can talk about whatever is appropriate, whatever is necessary for the occasion.
1: So as the Lord yeah. provides liberty and opportunity. Yes.
0: Yes. Yeah, as the Lord provides liberty, opportunity.
1: Should we also be mindful not to cause them to sin in stealing from their employer by engaging them in conversations that have nothing to do with their job at the time? Okay. We instead, possibly look for opportunities on their personal time, a break time. Yes.
0: So, so when we elongate this conversation, if it's not just a quick word, how are you doing with your Christian life? Remember what we talked about before. Now, that just a quick statement, or a quick comment, or question. Um, is not going to make them steal from their employer. But if we are there standing there for five minutes, even when it's off peak time, five or 10 minutes, then we're we're wasting their time and we're causing them to avoid doing other work that their employer expects them to do. So it can be quick when appropriate, and then at other times you just have to do what you have to do to get checked out and, and go to your home. But, you make another good point, that is, when you are able to associate with that individual at another time, why not do that? Why not arrange for it? Why not figure out another time to talk if you think he would be open to looking at the Bible, studying the Bible, to talk about it? Find time outside of the workplace.
1: So that's the wisdom You have the wisdom to know when is the appropriate time to talk about this and when is not the appropriate
0: time. Yes. When is it appropriate and when when is it not? And a lot of times it's quite obvious. It's quite obvious if you've got any awareness of your surroundings, any awareness of context, the occasion. It's quite obvious when you can, when you can't. For example, if you're passing out tracts, you cannot have a lengthy conversation with a cashier, for example, in a restaurant during peak hours. All you can do is hand a a tract and say, I have something, would you like to read this? And then if he says yes, then he can take it from you, and that's it, right? But you can't have a lengthy conversation. That's the wrong time to do it. You would end up being uh, a big jerk, to all the customers, to the whole situation. And then, like you said, stealing that employer's uh, time because the cashier is supposed to be working and doing other things at that time. So consider the context. Consider the situation.
1: So in this situation, you know, when Abraham is going to purchase this field, it's not the time to address the idolatry and everything that's going on. He needs to purchase the field and that's what he's there to do. Yeah so he goes and does what he needs to do, but then in, in another context it would be proper to address idolatry and those types of
0: things. right and we know he was a prophet yep. chapter 20 verse seven says he was a prophet and prophets speak up
1: yeah. Yeah. Ezekiel
0: chapter 36. yes verse 23. Ezekiel 36, 23. Yes, you want to read it? Or should I read it?
1: The second half of that. It's
0: the second half.
1: First, first he's rebuking the, the exiles for their
0: him uh, in, in among the heathen. But the second part he says,
1: And the heathen shall know that I am the Lord when said the Lord God, when I shall be sanctified in you before their
0: eyes. Yes. Okay. The second part of Ezekiel 36, 23. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when I prove myself holy among you in their sight. In their sight. Okay, so
1: you are
0: supposed to be in such close fellowship with God that... His holiness shines through you. Yes, okay. And the
1: heathen are able to see
0: God. The heathen or the nations see that you are holy and God is present among you. That's right. That's similar to uh, Matthew 5, 13 to 16. Matthew 5, 13 to 16, about the way in which we live among them. 513. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how will it be made salty again? It is good for nothing anymore except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do men light the lamp and put it under the peck measure, but on the lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So the way in which we live before them is to be like salt and light. Good. Any more? All right, thank you.